Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 135. So glad you could join me. Today's guest is Kevin Clark. He'll be here in just a few minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you share, leave us reviews on iTunes, whatever you can do to help poetry spread around the internet. you got to tell those computers you care, and then they might think that other people might care too, and that's why they show things to people, so please do participate in that fun stuff. Um, now we're going to show the, um, unfortunately, today's poet uh, for the Poetry Spawn poem, Agnesia um, Torek, well, wasn't able to be here today, um, but she is here in spirit for sure. And this is a beautiful poem. Um, yesterday, we, or, or last week, I should say, um, the poem of the week was one of those poems that kind of gave me goosebumps. And if that happens, you end up publishing it for sure. And this, and this poem gave me uh, tears. You know, I, I, I cried a little bit. And, and you'd think after reading... Over a thousand poems about the same topic that maybe you'd be a little dead inside and, and wouldn't be able to, you know, have those emotions. But this poem really brought it out. This is Abel's last words to Cain. And um, here's um, what Agnieszka Torek said about it. So let me put this on screen. Um, Each day of this senseless war brings new atrocities. There are many innocent civilians dead, men, women, and children who cannot be properly buried. This week... The world witnessed in horror the Russian soldiers bombing Ukrainian hospitals, including a maternity and children's hospital. There are no words. And then, of course, she provides the words, which we all need to hear. And this is uh, the poem of the week, um, Agnieszka Torek's Abel's Last Words to Cain. Here you go. Let's give it a listen. Abel's Last Words to Cain. A sparrow from my orchard flew by your house as you gunned me down. Brother... Why do you sow my frozen fields with copper and lead? What can sprout in spring from these bullet seeds? In this black soil I grow wheat. I could bake you such a crusty loaf of bread. Why do my fruit trees have combat wounds? Why do my sheep and cows lay dead? Why do women weave the sky's threads and use them as gauze bandages? Brother, You could still bring me back to life, to love, to light, if you don't bomb the hospital where my pregnant wife prays that our newborn son's first cry won't be his last. Why is the snow falling into my mouth? And why is it red? Brother, you could still... Yeah, and that was a beautiful poem, and... uh... Brother, you could still. Uh, what an ending to that. That was Abel's last words to Cain. Um, just, a, just a powerful poem. Uh, so, so thanks so much for sharing that. And um, let's take a look at another poem, too. Let's go back to the past. And I just randomly flipped back to see what was going on. This is March thirteenth, two 2016. And uh, this is um, David Miller's poem, Elegy. If you remember what was happening in 2016, um, David Miller says, this poem comes from the recent death of Nancy Reagan, from everyone calling her a great lady. She was. She terrified me, is what David Miller says. And this was March 13th, 2016. Let's give this poem a listen to. This is Elegy. Elegy. America, I just don't know anymore. I came to your house. The front door hung open. 
Inside were paper hats and sweet Kentucky whiskey, the walls streaked with red and blue handprints. Confetti carpeted the floor. The TV sang to me. The radios, too. America, I heard your dogs growling. Golden retrievers. America, I want a place to live. I want to play in unmarbled snow. I scoot through hallways. Voices sometimes bleat or shine through the walls. LED whitened. Nothing is ever dark enough. America, my phone calls to me. A voice from another room. Footsteps in the rain, worsted night. Tells me to hush, to love. Everything's going to be all right, it snarls. America, am I going crazy? America, are you yowling at me? America, when did Nancy Reagan grow old? How is she still alive? America, you make no sense to me. When did you start bleaching your hair? When did you start wearing blue and brown? Why do you dye your eyes? Where is the flat, white light my television has promised? The picture so clear, the darkness so deep. Why have you become so black and white, America? I drive to school. I teach Caesar and virtue. My students are ochre, ecru, pink, cinnamon, caramelized cabernet, the long-leaf wrapping of a Romeo y Julieta, the last sip of morning coffee just touched by half and half, the crust of cheese and my wife's bibinka, so sweet, so pliable. Why have you ignored the rest of us, America? Some say you taste of sour broughton and winter beer, but I hear the faint rustle of banana leaves, of sentences that only at their ornate ends erupt into meaning, like old Cicero's fevered speeches, or the slow download of Mishima's novels. America, you are a mask, worn down to gold. You hide yourself well by dancing, by political debate that rubs your arms against mine, your legs against mine, that open to me like the sun to the flat earth spinning around, engulfing me in a you I once dreamed. That is what you promised me, America, in eighth grade. Mrs. Tiedmacher told me of the American dream. She said you were rubies and sapphires. She said you were Tarzan and giant robot. She said you were a poor peanut farmer turned governor. She said in America, even a failed movie actress could become first lady. I heard you crying. I ran through the abandoned fields and across the broken on-ramps, the fences with their hems of grocery bags, the eyes of abandoned houses, bruised or silent in the beyond. I ran when I heard you crying, like a phone. No one told me how alone you are, I reassured myself. I said you were Christmas snow and familiar sitcoms, the smell of a wife's hair, a husband's shaving cream. I was almost asleep when I found you, not crying, but laughing, wiping your boot off. The spray can on its side, the paint sloughing down the side of my house, brotherhood in Christ. America, I've come to bury you, not to praise you. I want to see whether you stay buried, or how long you will stumble about in the off-brown wheat, or by blue-green rice paddies, or in all the colors you used to wear. 
Joseph is looking for his coat somewhere. Tell him not to come. He won't be allowed here. I want to see who lays the last bullet in your head. America, I have awoken. I am rage. I am sorrow. America, I just don't know what I am to you anymore. So I was that was David Miller with Elegy. A longer poem, and taking off, of course, from, um, from America, that famous Allen Ginsberg poem. And uh, it's interesting reading the political poems from Poets Respond um, back in the 2014, 15, 16 kind of era. They seem a little quaint, don't they? <laughs> um, so that was David Miller with Elegy. And now, um, and later in the show, I should say that um, Al Ortolani, uh, who's going to be Tuesday's Poets Respond poet, will be joining us, too, after we have our main guest. But let's go to our main guest now. We're going to go to Kevin Clark. And um, I'm going to go to a brief break, and we will be right back in just a moment. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. As I mentioned, today's guest is Kevin Clark. Uh, Kevin Clark's self-portrait with expletives won the Lennon Miles Weaver Todd Poetry Series book competition. His first full-length collection, In the Evening of No Morning, earned a grant from the Academy of American Poets. In the spring 2020, Kevin was selected for a two-year appointment as Poet Laureate of San Luis Obispo County, California. Recipient of two teaching awards, Clark has written a textbook, The Mind's Eye, A Guide to Writing Poetry. He lives with his wife, Amy Hughes, on California's Central Coast, where he continues to play hardball in city softball leagues. Uh, Stephen F. Austin University Press just published Kevin Clark's third full-length collection, The Consecrations, which we'll be focusing on today. And here he is, Kevin Clark. Hey, Kevin, how you doing? How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. The daylight savings time has thrown me off a little bit. It feels really early. Um, we got to end yeah. that practice. But <laughs> <laughs> we went to bed early last night. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I tried, but I, I I'm a I'm a night owl, so waking up uh, early is is rough on me. But uh, <laughs> but I'm glad to be here, and I'm really excited. Uh, your your book is great. I read um, uh, I read it last night, and just a, a beautiful book. Um, and Thank it's you. Such, such a variety, Thanks. but such deep and important topics. Um, but but let's, let's start out by uh, reading a poem. What do you want to read? A I think you want to read the first poem, right? Yeah, I'd like to read the first poem. I think uh, after uh, the two poems we've heard and also given what's going on right now, now I, I wrote this poem probably five years ago, but I think it has some application. It's called Two Stories, and it has an epigraph uh, that says, <clears throat> Wire Service Photo Hungarian Border. Once again, the migrants eat the road. In the paper, a young couple fit and hungry. I study them like ancestors. They hug, wave at the camera, having hung from a raft, then slogged the alien miles before crossing a demarcation unknown to the earth upon which it's drawn. An invisible stripe running on like a joke that's been told and retold since the first line was drawn in the dirt. The couples swell up with their own resolve, survivors of lice-laced coffee grounds, puddled water, grasses in the center lane. In the community of marriage, they've become the power of myth. At the movies last night, I sat next to my wife, laughed at the sardonic jokes, the wise American actress her domestic comedy asserting its complex of new ethics. I knew we'd soon walk into the night 
order caramel gelatos, then go home sloshed in the plush boat of all that cream. And so for a few mindless hours, we entered the same domain the couple would have entered in their own country, had the joke of history not demanded a new version of the same moral. Once inside, our very touch is the wall beyond which we may choose not to see. And that was two stories, the opening poem to Consecrations, uh, Kevin Clark's newest book. And um, do you want to explain a little bit about, um, about the title? Um, you know, Consecrations are, I, I'm not Catholic, but, but that's the point where um, um, Jesus is transformed, where the bread is actually his body, right? Right. In general, so I was raised Catholic. I'm not Catholic now, though they say, you know, if you're Catholic or Jewish, you're always Catholic and Jewish, right? But um, uh, it, it's it's the act of making something sacred, mm. right? Um, and uh, so the book, I think, looks through throughout it into the, the shadows, you know, the dark. Uh, and uh, it... It occasions upon these moments of light. Um, it's an extremely difficult world at times, and yet um, there are moments of buoyancy, light, ecstasy, whatever you want to call it. Um, and actually, the book has an epigraph from, um, from Elizabeth Alexander. We walk into that which we cannot see. Um, and there's uncertainty all the time. I guess this is one of the themes I seem to have, over the course of my life, grown into and, and uh, become obsessed by, which is that we can't know much, um, and that things out there, um, I don't want to over-exaggerate you know, it uh, for some of us, but things out there can be difficult um, and uh, can be actually quite dangerous too. Mm -hmm. And yet um, the consecrations uh, it, throughout this book, the idea is that there's hope for those moments of light, even if they're brief, transient moments, right? That give us uh, pause and happiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, it just seems like such a good metaphor for what poetry does for like the act of poetry is a, is a consecratory act if you could if that's a word um, consecrational yeah consecrational <laughs> it, it is though i mean it's making it's making something you know substantial and, and fixing it in time and 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 making some meaning out of it um yeah. and, and transforming it into something special you know it's the turning the mundane into the sacred um, and, and, and that's what your, your poetry is just all about. I love those deep questions. I mean, that's what I loved reading the book. It's just that it's one of those, it's not a, a book of frivolity. It's a book of, um, of, of really examining what life is and, and what our, our space in the world is and, and what our relationships are with respect to that, you know, through marriage. And, um, I don't know, it, it's a, it's a, you know, really, really, really good book to read. Um, do you want to read another poem? I really appreciate that. And that, I just want to say in that poem, you know, in two stories, uh, one of the questions really is uh, if, if you are a person who believes in empathy, in, um, in compassion, how, how do you balance that with your conscious awareness of the pain in the world? 
you have to, for the sake of sanity, find some moments of light, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, and uh, I think I'll read uh, the poem that was published in Rattle. Um, it's a poem called Elegy, and uh, it has a, a first-person speaker who's uh, who who remembers a movie when I was much much younger. I saw Angels with Dirty Faces with James Cagney. And uh, in that movie, uh, Cagney, he is a criminal. He's uh, been uh, he's going to be put to death and he's going to have to walk up and be hung. And uh, a priest says, listen, all these kids are watching you. And do you want them to go down the road you went or not? And um, so Cagney actually goes up uh, into uh, this uh, terrible moment, screaming and everything. And you think it's probably an act that he's done. And this is a form of redemption for him. So, uh, you know, how do we choose to live with purpose, right? Um, Elegy. I'll never forget that punk Cagney jabbing words like shivs as if he knew everything was black and white as the movie. Plump with urban Blarney, his old friend, the priest visits just before his hanging, tells him, listen, it's not too late. The ticket to heaven is acting the coward when you climb the gallows. That way the street kids won't have a bad guy for a hero. You think, Well, maybe, or maybe going good is a fool's dream. We all know Cagney was pissed at the universe for the lonely Jack he was dealt. How he would have told the orphans, the end is close as tomorrow's gruel. Grab what you can. Then he would have laughed in their faces. Can you see the thing forever announcing its arrival like gray rust crawling up those silver skyscrapers every dusk, no matter how good or bad the deck. Maybe there ain't no heaven, maybe there is. So what do you do when the two cops lead you to the last stairs you'll ever climb? Either way, you'll be dead in a few seconds, but by God, you're alive right now. The mother you never had backlit in the park saying, baby, the world's all yours. Make it count. Yeah, and that was elegy from the yeah. consecrations. Um, that that um, background chime is is coming in when it pops in. So I don't know, but there's no. <laughs> maybe somebody um, somebody watching the chat can recognize what that chime is because we couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Yeah, yeah. Is it uh, some kind of notification? But I don't know what. Yeah, I turned all my notifications off. <laughs> anyway, um, somebody already mentioned it. it was Daniel Mask who says cool cover, and it is a really cool cover. This is a beautiful book. Um, and can you explain what you know what this cover is? What's this, what this um, this painting is, and and why you chose it? So uh, I used to subscribe to uh, a magazine called New American Painting, and um, the I saw this extraordinary painting in it. And it was by a a woman painter from New England named uh, Elaine Spatz Rabinowitz. And I really uh, urge people to look for her work, Elaine Spatz Rabinowitz, 
This is uh, an amaryllis. And um, it struck me as not only uh, beautiful, but uh, somehow almost cast into the background material um, as if it wants to come out of the world, but is being pulled back. Right. And um, it's uh, it's it's like it is part of the difficulty, but still asserting a kind of beauty. Hmm. Um you know, so uh, I I see it as an emblem of of consecration. Hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just a gorgeous book. Um, so so how did you get into poetry? I'm always curious about that. Um, you know, especially somebody who loves baseball is not a very common uh, common <laughs> career trajectory. So so what was it that drew you to poetry? You know, that's uh, it's really funny. Um, my parents were. <clears throat> I was very fortunate. My parents were both college graduates, uh, but they never, ever, ever mentioned poetry. And I was just drawn to it for some innate reason. Um, I was my, both of my parents uh, were something of storytellers, and we were encouraged to tell stories at the dinner table. Uh, in fact, I remember my father telling my brother and me to tell a story. Go. Right. What happened at school today? Go. Um and then uh, I also, you, you know, um, my aunt was Mary Higgins Clark, the suspense writer, and uh, she used to host big family dinners. Uh, my father died, uh, my uncle, her husband died, and we would have these huge family dinners. My father died when I was 14. And uh, we were all uh, competitive storytellers, but boy, you'd be in trouble if your story got a little bit boring, you know? <laughs> Uh, and people would jump all over you and head into the next story. And so I think there's a something of a narrative thread in some of my poems. Um, but as a kid, I just loved reading. And, uh, you know, my first poets were, you know, I, this is not unusual, were Robert Frost and Dylan Thomas. And, uh, and then as I went to college, you know, I fell in love with people as different as T.S. Eliot and, and, and Allen Ginsberg and Sylvia Plath, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And then when I got older, I, I you know, I just read everybody. Uh, so in terms of where it comes from, um, it, it's a mystery to me. I, I've just always, always been drawn to it. I've wanted to say, say, I wanted to do something. It was spectacular. Something happens. There's a transformative essence that uh, I seem to experience, and I think most poets experience, when, um, as Yeats says, the poem clicks into place, right, Tim? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's this this meditative place where we're making. I mean, a poet means a maker, you know, and, and we're making making something out of the world, which is the the I don't know. It's the main point of human life. I think is to yes. is to make stories. That's what we do. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And, and one of the things that you do, um, and we were talking about this a little bit before, but um, you're one of the only poets we've had in the show so far who writes long poems. There are uh, several, yes. I think maybe five or six pretty long poems. Um, yes. I think my favorite is the dog poem. I think it's just dogs or... Um, but but it's just, um, um, you know, following that, that train... Uh, of, of um, you know, keeping our engagement through a long poem is something that not a lot of um, contemporary poets even attempt to do very often. Um, how is it? Can you talk a little bit about that? About how you 
write these longer poems that you have um how do you how do you keep the reader's attention through you know 10 pages or more well um you know when again when i was young i really liked long poems uh too and uh, i think it was wallace stevens who said something about how a long poem naturalizes the reader to the voice of the speaker right you become uh, almost part of that voice and uh, so you know it's funny uh, we had talked about the possibility of discussing this this is the mind's eye that's uh my uh textbook for in poetry writing and i had uh, a sentence on the question uh i didn't know you're going to ask it exactly but uh i say to the student generally you want to invest a longer poem with three things, an arresting narrative that echoes throughout the poem, some kind of intriguing language that keeps the readers involved, and a compelling theme that warrants the complexity of the form. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you need all three of those things. For emerging writers might want to try that. You know, um, I don't know that there's a... Uh, a, a perfectly clear narrative, say, in how, you know, or or in America, uh, the poem you mentioned earlier. But I do think that, uh, uh, you know, in some of these poems, um, these great poems, you do feel like even Prufrock, D.S. Eliot's great poem, you know, you do feel that kind of thing moving through it, that that uh, there's a compulsion but there's also a narrative thread he's got to get to a party he's got to try to meet a woman ah it doesn't work you know um and uh, you know when i was and then when i was younger i i remember reading a lot of terrific poems like uh, the book of nightmares mm -hmm. goldway cannell's great book um which is 10 long poems right uh i don't know if a lot of people know the blackstone rangers by gwendolyn brooks it's a really beautiful mid to late long poem. Um, there's a newer long poem by a guy named uh, John Katie, K-O-E-T-H-E, named Falling Water about a divorce. Um, you know, and then Rita Dove. I mean, she's written two verse length, uh, you know, first, what am I thinking? Novel, uh, verse novels, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Thomas and Beulah and Son Sonata Melodica. So these are all the kinds of things i've just grown to love you know yeah there's something about about modern attention spans too that, that it's hard to even maybe read longer poems because we're so used to sort of constant stimulation now we're trained like the you know the mice where we just want to keep pushing that lever for reward um do you do you think about about like chunking the long poems into i remember talking to a slam poet once i can't remember who it was um, but he was talking about how in slam and performance poetry, you want to give as many sort of like punches per minute is, is a kind of uh, a stat that you could have for poetry. Uh, do, do you think about that? Do you think about as you move through the poem, giving that like sort of surprise or shock or insight um, continually? So you keep feeding the, the attention of the reader. Boy, I, I I almost use that language. I don't use the word punch, but the the surprise. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it, it, I would say in any poem, short or long, I'd I'd like to have a series of little surprises, right? And there are many ways to do it. One, of course, is imagery, but sound is another way that you can uh, supply surprise, right? Mm 
Um, but in the longer poem, uh, well, you mentioned the poem Dog, and uh, that poem has, uh, you know, individual sections to it. And each one uh, has a little punch to it. So, yes, uh, I think about that a lot. I want the reader to want to continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so there are two people, uh, there are two suggestions for what the noise is. It could be their email or an iPhone, if you want to check either of those. And then um, my, my iPhone is turned off. Yeah. And, and then someone else thought it might be your email. Uh, my so I'm going to ask you to read the long poem, but I hate it to be interrupted if, if we can avoid it. Yeah. Uh, okay. I don't know how to turn my email off. Yeah. Well, I'm still sure everybody who knows you is watching the show right now, so just don't email Kevin. Okay? Right. 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 <laughs> um, anyway, do you want to read? I think it's now's a good time for that, for a long poem. I don't know which one you wanted to read. Well, do you want me to read, dog? Or... Yeah, yeah, whichever one you'd like. Um, I like that one a lot. Okay. So uh, Dog is a poem that takes me back. Um, and uh, I, uh, you know, so I'm a child of the 60s uh, to an extent. Uh, and I, uh, I, I think there was a time where uh, I thought that having gone through all of the uh, experiences of the 60s and especially the drugs you know, I did pot and acid and plenty of things um, and had some pretty bad experiences and never, ever touch anything like it anymore. Um, I thought, you know, I could sustain a lot uh, that I had experienced enough to know that when I came into a bad, uh, you know, sudden, surprisingly awful situation, you know, I'm prepared. Right. I think I was wrong. So uh, this is a poem about that subject. It's called Dog One. We saw the gun, then froze. It's Berkeley. We're posed on a ball field, the pitcher fiddling with the tripod and screaming in his pot-hazed laugh that we assholes better huddle tight. When some lunatic friend of the shortstops leans loose-kneed behind the catcher, pulls the chrome long barrel from his jacket, waves it skyward and fires so loud, the pressure knocks us off plumb till we scatter in slow-mo backward flight. Thank God for those moments, I'm thinking two decades later, as Lily's husband Brick turns from the faux marble kitchen bar to curl his arm beneath her left breast, then rub his thumb upward in a slow half-moon arc. I'm past 40, ever the romantic. Even in the blaze of college drugs, sexual show-offs were like garage rock, the drummer always offbeat. My wife is squeezing my hand hard beneath the kitchen counter when Brick says, show them. And our friend laughs in that high-pitched third glass of white wine riff. No, honey, of course I can't show them. And as her face reads like a lost language, I'm ready. I'd seen enough absurdist acts at the psychedelic theater of our youth. Nothing could throw me now. Two, there are those rare people born immune to threat. Either that or they flat out like it. Not me. As a young man, my chakra 
were fine-tuned to go taut and sing nervous in the slightest, slightest psychotic breeze. My courage ran to cross country, each step past the lactic edge, a measure of just how far I could detach myself from the immensity of suffering down there in my legs. But in college, I'd learned to push the high voltage panic into the peripheries so that stillness would pass for calm. I still remember the night after the guy pulled the gun, how my skin thrummed at a sound past hearing when my girlfriend's brownies, lush with seeds and slow cooked butter, lured the cop sirens of the flats over our mattress on the floor. Sleep as distant tease. I watched the wailing arc through the window convert to matter and flesh into a cross-legged swami with lizard head, a duplicity holding forth two consecrating hands upon which a swirl of diamond blades formed and reformed the pre-strike S of a hooded cobra. For a timeless 10 seconds, I faked myself Buddhist, imagined a future in which my blood pressure pooled into calm so the reptiles would dis dissipate. In a blazed instant, we'd been known to paint the night fluorescent, free dance on bedroom walls. But this was different. I found a way out of panic that night by telling myself how the story would play in the ears of friends I didn't know yet. Three. Once I recognized some distant twin version of myself in a magazine. It wasn't me, but as sorry ass as I knew that portrait to be, I couldn't help but read my twin self cutting edge. I knew the trick to dope was never turning back to check yourself out for too long. Otherwise, some animal incubus could open its eyes to stare back through the jamboree mirror. Many stories later, when I began this poem, I actually thought our 60s hallucinogenic orbiting into the weird had been good prep for whatever sudden freak show splits the cracks of the quotidian. As if the window pane and the good gold and even the white crosses had fired up so many electric dramas that the idiosyncratic suburban tremors to come would seem no more annoying than the 50-foot patch of deep sand I'd plod on my run to the edge of town. I'd even been nostalgic for the old dialect when weed glazed any sequence with goofball astonishment. But who's ever ready for the animal call of the crazies? I'd forgotten that the distance I'd built between fear and the illusory calm the, the gap that, sh that kept shock at bay had left its edgy scar. By the time Brick lifted Lily's shirt and bra to show us his name filigreed in an ornate U beneath her nipple, I'd long forsaken grass and chemicals. Lily was two kids into her late thirties and its slight pendant swell should have made me think her breast exquisitely erotic but the tattoo was so new, it raised her flesh in blistered relief and the quick rush in my gut atomized. Brick smiled and nodded, pinching Lily's blouse high, his thumb and forefinger ever so lightly rubbing the blonde cotton fold back and forth. 
four. The story in the magazine went something like this. There are five of us jabbering in slow motion under a wide old tree, a joint circling in the kind of spring air that laps your skin with profound affection. Roots bulge softly like backrests. There's only the present, a constant cycle of astonishing insights. We're not hungry yet. Just then, a dog tr trots up, a dog in a bandana, and he stops for petting, and we're laughing at dogness itself, the happy panting, the absurdist soul of dog. And soon enough, we're rolling on the grass, convulsing in good comic hysteria. Then the sun rises a lot. The lunatic pulls the gun out of the sky and sticks it down the back of his pants and flaps his denim jacket over it. The cross-legged swami floats off with lizard cool like a sheriff. The door he exits closes in another realm. Someone marries and heads for Europe, returns. There's four of us, then six, hard to keep track. Finally, Brick releases Lily's blouse. She feigns a witty remark. A decade of jobs, then another reunion, the same tree calling to us. Ralph pulls out a fresh joint and sends it circling, two tokes each. The afternoon, presses at the eardrums until the world outside is a mean, echoing distance. Two more tokes, a tightening at the throat. Shadows spider, bushes shift like uniforms. No one wants to lie on the ground. Ralph snaps a clawed hand. A story trails off. You hear every word you speak wobble in a reverb. Only you haven't spoken. Then a sideways glance, another, as if each friend is a circus mirror. Then the worst nostalgia, the skin of the body is a hide. We're the joke. We've become the dog. And that was Dog, uh, one of the, the longer poems from, or from the Consecrations. And, and I mean, there's a lot to love about that poem um, and, and all the longer poems too, because had the same kind of feeling where they're, they're sort of circling around a topic that's really hard to articulate. Uh, and that's the thing that's sort of amazing to me about it is that, is that they, they keep that sense of mystery, even as they move through the same topic um, from so many different angles and, and jumping through time and, 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 you know, mixing different things together, similar to the, the braids from David Kirby in a way. Yeah. I um, loved it. Kirby. So, so how does a poem like that come to be? Um, how do you, did you know that you were going to write a long poem or did it happen organically in the process of writing a shorter poem that you realized there was more and more substance there? Um, and, and how long did it take to write that poem too? I, I'm just curious about the, the, the production of it. Okay. So um, unless I know I'm going to try to write a sonnet and I write a few of them, there are a couple in the book. I don't know what the length of the poem is going to be when I start. Uh, I had an idea and uh, there were really two ideas. Uh, there was the guy who takes this gun out and we were at a baseball practice, a softball practice in Berkeley and a guy takes a gun out. Right. And it was a huge thing. And it scared all of us. He was on the team. 
and then um, and then I think uh, I, I I had this idea that I told you about that, you know, I could handle anything because of that stuff. But actually, I found out I couldn't. And I knew that. So I thought, OK, I'll write about that subject. I didn't know how long it would take. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I'm also you mentioned braiding. I really like the idea of braiding, but I also like um, putting together what might seem like disparate elements and having a closure that you may not anticipate, right? Um, the poem starts out about this notion of trying to, to sustain uh, emergency situations uh, because you've had this history. Uh, but in effect, at the end of the poem, it's really heading to this uh, explanation of the fact that uh, these drugs have you know, screwed you over to some degree, that it's a psychologically dangerous thing to to, to mess with. Um, I don't know anybody better at doing this kind of thing than the poet Susan Mitchell in her book, Rapture, where, you know, she puts together all these different disparate things and, and she gets to a place that the poem's always been going to, but you don't realize it while you're reading it. And that's the mystery. And I think you mentioned that word too. There's a mystery going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know what's going to happen as I'm writing the poem. I just try to follow it out, and then I revise like mad. Yeah. It, it's so startling, too, when the dog appears, which you kind of forget that that was the title. Um, yes. You know, yes. it, when did the dog appear to you? Did you know that you were writing toward that place? or was it, Absolutely was it, not. Yeah. Absolutely not. I had no idea the dog was going to appear. I, you know, I, I titled it after I wrote it. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So, no, not at all. Yeah, it's just fascinating to to see the way that these these poems, um, you know, reveal themselves in, in the process of writing. It's just a, a mystery of the universe that we can even do this. <laughs> yeah, you know, in a previous book, I end uh, in the self uh, self portrait with expletives. Uh, that book has a poem at the very end called "Accident Alert," and uh, one of the points of that poem is that uh, you have to be alert to the uh, fruitful accidents in your life. And those fruitful accidents uh, can be helpful to anybody, but especially helpful to a poet. Mm-hmm. Fruitful accident in this case was suddenly I remembered the dog. Yeah, well, everybody else loves that poem, too. And, and people are much more articulate than me this morning. They must have had more coffee. But they say, like, such a cascade of collapsing and opening spaces and memories piling up, especially the second to last stanza. Incredible. That was Melissa Slattery. And just people love that poem. Um, and I do, too. It's a great poem. And so many good poems in this book. Um, one more specific question. Danny Mass wanted to know about the um, the numbers. Like, why did you choose to number the sections the way you did because it could they do jump in space and time even within a section so so what was it that that made you do that you know add that element to it um okay so some poems some of the longer poems i do not do that right and some i do uh i felt and this is just intuition right i felt that in effect um i needed to give the reader chapters mm-hmm And I felt like uh, if I uh, had a hard pause, a chapter pause, um, I could jump in time and space to another scene without transition. And uh, and that um, made the poem less um, uh, stable and more disorienting. And that's what I wanted in that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So one of the things I noticed in your bio um, is that you really highlight your your um, role as a teacher uh, more than yeah. a lot of poets do. It feels like it's something that's really important to you. Can you talk a little yeah. about about what your experience has been teaching poetry, um, and and how have um, you know, how has that changed over the years? And, and do you teach creative writing, um, or do you, what kind of poetry do you teach? Uh, I teach uh, poetry writing, mm-hmm. and uh, in fact, um, y- you dear friend editor, uh, published a poem of mine years ago called Class Politics. And in Class Politics, um, I say, uh, you know, the student is the lesson, right? Meaning that uh, if, at least in my case, and I think in the case of good teachers generally, um, there is so much to be learned from the interaction with the students. I, I, I never liked pure lecturing. I liked uh, sitting in a circle and talking. And I would come out uh, excited, energized by particularly good classes, which happened with some regularity. Um, and uh, so I teach at the Rainier Writing Workshop. Uh, let me uh, make a plug for the low residency MFA program, which is situated in Tacoma at the Pacific Lutheran University. It's really a good program with director Rick Barrett. And uh, uh, it's quite exciting to be in a workshop and to be talking to students about their own work and uh, the there's a kind of back and forth osmosis. Um, and I think maybe a lot of students don't realize that, that the teacher uh, is usually getting a lot back. Mm-hmm. And uh, it may actually be something that lodges in the subconscious and later comes out in the work. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, I and, and I got to tell you, I've had many, many, many really, really good uh, students, some of whom went on to other kinds of careers. Many went on to other kinds of careers, uh, many of whom have gone on to publish books and be really fine, fine poets out there. And uh, that's another advantage, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like when your children go off and do something just terrific. Uh, You know, my daughter is a uh, beautiful uh, uh, social worker in Los Angeles. She does such beautiful work there. Um, And uh, my son is a beautiful uh, pen and ink artist. But my other sort of children are are these students who have gone out and done this remarkable work, this astonishingly imaginative poetry. And I get such a kick out of it to see it. Like, I hope my teachers did to some degree. So, so as you teach, um, is there, is there like, how do you go about, you know, everybody has their own perspective and their own thing that they're trying to do. Um, so, so how much, how much do you think is like the lessons that you can teach are universal and how much do you have to tailor to students, um, you know, to, 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 for what they're trying to do? Um, that's something that I'm always kind of curious about is just, there's sort of a subjective and an objective element to art in general. Um, so how do you, how do you navigate that? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So the first thing I think is that a good teacher, a good poetry teacher, can't demand in any way that the student write poetry like the teacher does, right? That that teacher has to be open to all kinds of expression, 
and has to. Uh, so the, the poet Brenda Hillman once said to me that uh, the good poetry teacher um, helps the student identify what the student does well, helps the student exploit that talent, shows the student other things they that the student might do well, and gives the student reading to help. And um, so I try to I try to do those things, you know. In terms of class, uh, you know, when I'm working with individual students, uh, I I suggest that everybody uh, should try to figure out what's going on on the surface of the poem first, but that underneath. That's where the meat is, right? And that we have to think of, uh, we have to think, you know, that there is something at stake in any good poem. Uh, I take that term at stake uh, from Peggy Shoemaker, terrific poet. Uh, And what's at stake? There's There's something in the speaker, the protagonist, the narrator, something is there that is an impediment to happiness. And that, uh, that, that protagonist has to either overcome it, be overcome it, you know, somehow work it to a draw. And if that doesn't come across in the poem, uh, then we need to work on that as well. Interesting. I, for some reason, I've never heard that called the, the impediment to happiness, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah, great lessons th- you know, throughout this, this conversation. Um, do you want to read another poem? Yeah. Make sure we get through a good number of them. Sure. Um, how about we read the second poem in the book? It's called Admitting Belief. Um, and uh, it's uh, based on a, a true story. Um, I was raised in northern New Jersey. I was born in Manhattan, raised in northern New Jersey. And uh, I live in California now. But uh, we, my mother used to take us periodically to Pine Lake, which was just a sandy lake. <clears throat> Had a diving board and things. Um, and this is a story about when we went there. It's um, it's about the lengths we'll go, really, in order to, how to put it, to retain normalcy in our lives, I think, uh, uh, a set, a, especially like in Dog, when we feel it's slipping away, right? Admitting belief. We were sun-wrecked and itching to go back from lunch into the green lake water when the lifeguards screeched their whistle over and over, and we looked up to see them waving everyone out. Calm, fatalistic, Protestant, you bear with me when I tell this story every few years. Nod, shake your head, tell me, go on. My mother demanded we come to her, and so we sat, watched the pool go lifeless, while a big woman screamed and pointed there, and there, and again there, at ripples under the high dive until it became clear her kid was missing. Five decades later, I fear it's true. Someone's always missing. This time, I don't describe for you each scenario I've dreamed and told too often. One may be right there, around the corner, or maybe hiding, counting seconds in his room, the shades down, the lights off, the clock and phone cords pulled from the sockets. Or another may have taken off in the pitch inhalation of 2 a.m. so no one will sense her empty bed. Or she may be missing in the altogether breathless way that surges like adrenaline 
the cop on duty, not picking up the phone that hasn't yet rung, can't ring, because the fathers or wives or roommates can't bring themselves to dial, can't remember, can't enter the phase in which to call is to admit belief. Some nights my trouble is I can't escape the incoming silence of alarms that tell me I should believe in something other than the pulse knifing my temple. After my mother huddled us onto the blanket in the branching shadows, I kept waiting for her to say it was time to pack, head home, we have to go, now. But she sat, wrapped, peering at the ripples from minute after howling minute. The year before, as we ate after-school snacks, she'd hung up the phone too slowly, her face literally gnarling with grief and rage when she dragged us into the living room, then made us kneel at the coffee table, the rosary vibrating in her bloodless hands. You say, for some, prayer's a comfort, a means. Soon enough, three lifeguards with thick rope hoisted the body it's awful white, up the walls, where they performed the useless rituals of respiration. Why did she need to watch? You take my hand, tell me my mother was a driven woman, so righteous even God would think twice before talking back to her. Tonight, she too is among the missing. I can't shake her last skeletal image when the screen in the cancer ward flatlined. Bodies float to the surface. I squeeze your hand. Hold on to what it is I have. Outside, closing in, the dark, the wind, the ceaseless, invisible gatherings. Yeah, so many great lines that, you know, that was it the useless rituals of respiration? Yeah. Um, admitting belief was the poem. And that's a perfect segue back to what we were talking about early on. I didn't want to get too esoteric in the beginning of the interview. But um, but the poem, the book of poems is so much about, um, I don't know, like making sense of the inexplicable and, and yes. the, the unknowable nature of the universe. Yes. Um, and, and given the universe that we live in, which is has that nature... Um, you know, what can you believe in is, is a question, you know? And so, so how do you, how do you think about our own space within the universe? Wow. What a great <laughs> question, man. I got to tell you, you're, you're picking up in my book, my obsession, right? That is my obsession. Right. I once uh, wrote an essay uh, for the Georgia review. And the first line was uh, the first sentence was all verse is inquiry. Right. And, um, you know, I, and I remember Willa Cather, Willa Cather said, uh, 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 the journey is all the goal is nothing. Right. Um, uh, I'm obsessed with uh, the way the universe hides its secrets. You know, I've read stuff of a lot about the new science, about quantum physics, about hard the hard problem of consciousness, um, all of these esoteric problems and issues, right? 
I, uh, when I, when I was young and I was no longer uh, a practicing Catholic, I, I, I became very interested in Tillard de Chardin, the Jesuit who was often accused of being heretical because of some of his ideas. And his ideas, I'm still interested in the notion that there is in all matter consciousness and that all matter is inclined towards something that's non-material, that it's inclined towards what you might call, you know, white light, which is inclined towards divinity, that 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 we're on a we're only on an early part of a spectrum moving towards a kind of universal divinity. I don't know. Maybe that's just nonsense. But it does intrigue me, the notion that um, the universe is constantly hiding these secrets um, is, is very intriguing. And, um, you know, there is an idea that's being floated now that um, our conscious minds have some connection to a kind of quantum realm as well. Um, and in that quantum realm, uh, things are not predetermined, right? Things are filled with accident. Um, uh, there are so many um, ideas in contemporary physics which are almost impossible to fully explain. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't explanations. I understand that. A hundred years from now, maybe we'll have some. But uh, the whole idea of string theory and a unified field and all this, I, I think it's all, all um, uh, extremely interesting. I don't, it, it's, it's, it remains to a certain degree speculative. Um, and... Uh, you know, I grew up thinking there's a heaven. Uh, I don't think it's likely there's a heaven, but I do think there um, are uh, fabulous secrets to unfold out there. Yeah, it's so fascinating the way that we're, as human beings, drawn to mystery. Like, we really want to explore the mysteries of the universe. And, yes. and yet, it feels like the, you know it's just completely unknowable. Like, even if we understood every moment and, and could sort of diagram and model every single thing that happened since the Big Bang. Uh, we yes. still have no idea what happened before the Big Bang or why. You know, it's turtles all the way down. And so we're just searching for this unknowable thing that we can never get to. Um, and and I feel like like poetry is one of the few avenues to explore that. And that's what poetry is really about, is, is figuring that out. Um, one of the things that I always think about too, and, and I'm wondering about your, your take on this, um, cause you're a baseball player and what I love about baseball is that it's so reactive, you know, you're, you're sort of, there's a play and it's like, boom, and it happens and you're moving without, like you're losing consciousness every play basically, you know, and then between plays, you're like back into your own body. And then as soon as the crack of the bat, like you move without having any thought to move or any kind of, um, you know, you're becoming one with the entire environment for a brief second. You know, if I'm diving in the hole to cover a grounder at shortstop and then popping up and throwing to first, I have no idea that I'm doing that. And, and that's the same feeling that you get from poetry too, which is the fascinating thing. Like when you get into the poem, it's that sense of, of oneness. Um, is, is that your experience? Do you think that's why you're drawn to poetry? I mean, drawn to baseball, I should say. I think it's why I'm drawn to both to a degree. Um, but in baseball, you know, I I'm, I do a little pitching, but I'm primarily a first baseman. And um, uh, I love being in the infield and I love having, 
just what you said. First of all, when you go out to the infield, you know, I take care of first base like it's, you know, my living room. Right. And I'm always fixing it up, making sure there's not going to be a bad hop. Right. And uh, and then, yes, you just re- react. You just react. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, when I was younger, I'm a, I was a better fielder than I am now, but I still like uh, picking it at first base. But it's not something you think. You just have to react. And um, just before, as I was saying in a poem, uh, you have to be open. You have to be alert to the accidents that happen. In effect, you have to be alert uh, like a first baseman to something that could be that you can't predict. Um, And the poem um, takes you into uh, it takes you outside of the quotidian and into outside of daily thinking into a very special place. It's almost like a, I know some people disagree with this, but for me, it's almost uh, a hypnotic or mesmerizing place. Um, and I, I have to get there before the imagination really takes off. For me, a poem requires that mesmerizing state so I can go further and further into the dark thicket that I've gone down before and then take yet another step into a place I've never been. I hope that's that's my hope in, in each poem I write. And in that new place, I can find something I've never said, and hopefully, in a way, I've never said it. Yeah, and and two, the process of writing poetry is, um, you know, I was listening to somebody talk about meditation, and and it's not something that I do, but I feel like I do it playing baseball and writing poems. But but it is is the 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 moment of noticing your own consciousness is something outside of yourself. Like the thoughts that are being generated aren't actually you. And then, and then being aware of that and being able to explore that within your own thoughts and that relationship between your thoughts and the, whatever the you is, is kind of where the poem exists in that, in that conversation. Um, so, so who do you think the you is? Um, you know, I mean, what if you strip down all those layers that are not you, what do you think is left? If you mean the you who is doing the writing, right? Uh, because there's a, a you who does the reading. I, you know, when I'm reading somebody else, uh, say I'm reading, uh, let, let me just choose Larry Levis, all right? I'm reading Larry Levis and I'm reading, uh, uh, the, you know, any, any one of his poems. Um, I feel like Levis and I get to be this other consciousness, right? Okay. But then that's different from the writing. Um, uh, I think the you is a um, a kind of um, conscious plus subconscious version of me. That that's who I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. And so so Danny says um, Kevin was explaining the flow. So so one more question, I guess maybe is how do you get into that state where you're writing and you're you're surprising yourself as you go. It's funny, you know, uh, the last time we held uh, a a residency before COVID at the Rainier Writing Workshop, I was asked to give a little talk at lunch. And I talked about how sometimes it's difficult to cross into that state um, because other things in life can interfere. Right. And other things call you. 
right? Um, you know, you have to uh, not just get the garbage out or cook the dinner or uh, take care of your child or whatever, but there are plenty of other things that are calling you, including these difficulties that we know in the news and, uh, you know, a war in Russia, the COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of how do I get there, is that effectively what you're asking? Yeah. Do you have a process? Like, I always wonder if, you know, I, I feel like it, yes. ritual, you, you mentioned ritual in that poem. And uh, and I feel like we all sort of have a ritual that helps us enter that space where we can be in that level of consciousness. Okay. So um, your readers, maybe your listeners may be disappointed to know that I I drink coffee, but only decaf. Uh, and I have a decaf in the morning. And uh, when I'm in my writing mode, um, I uh, write in two different places in the house. I have a corner chair in the living room, uh, which I really like. And then I have uh, my study where I am now. And um, I uh, uh, I like nice light. Um, and I try, I usually... As I'm having coffee, read something, almost always poetry. And then um, I think reading poetry helps me start the transition. And then I, um, there's two different elements, right? And I'm sure you've felt this, Tim. Uh, if you're starting a new poem, it's even a harder transition, right? But if you're going back to work on revision, which I work on a tremendous amount. I, I, you know, these longer poems take a lot of revision. Um, I uh, can slip into that mesmeric state a little more quickly. Um, so the ritual is decaf, a particular place, silence, good light, my laptop, and the, um, the echo or the sensation I have gotten from having done some reading. Oh, that's interesting because I um, the problem with me for revision is I feel like I can't get back into the same space. Like I mm. feel like I'm a different person when I re-enter a poem, and I just want to write a different poem. If I'm, uh, yeah, you know. I know. Yeah, yeah. For me, it's. Uh, I I guess I, what I'd say is uh, I come in and hope to get as as mesmerized as I was. But in the beginning, it's helpful not to be because there's an editorial part of your uh, your view of the poem that can see what went wrong with the first draft, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so, um, it's, uh, one last question, I guess, on that: like, how do you how do you recognize what went wrong? Like, is there a do you read out loud? Do you do yes. you listen for things that feel off, or do you think about like how do you how do you approach a, a second draft? Since you're somebody who who writes in drafts, uh, uh, all of those things. But basically, um, okay, allow me to say it's a bullshit detector, mm -hmm. right? Um, where I have uh, thrown a lot onto the page. Let's say it's the first draft, right? And I in a longer poem, I often don't finish it. Uh, a first draft and a shorter poem, I may finish a first draft, but um, I try to get a lot out. I try not to let too much uh, kind of editorializing voice enter. I want the poem, I, I want the heart of uh, the poem, especially the tonality, the, the tone of the poem to be very um, evident. 
and to let and have that drive the poem. If I don't have a sense of tone, of, of sound, then I'm probably not going to have a good poem. So first I get that, I want that all out. But then when I come back to it, there's a lot of bad stuff in there. There's a lot of nonsense. And the, uh, the more editorial side of my mind can pick it out immediately, get rid of it and mesmerize, get, go mesmeric again and get into it. Yeah, it's interesting that you say the bullshit detector because I feel like that's what the ju- that's what an editor does, or at least that's my role. Like I, as I'm reading submissions, I'm just waiting for that buzzer to go off. There's a bullshit, yeah. <laughs> and right. then you know, then I move on to the next one. Right, uh, right. But in your own, you have to try to fix it, which is probably a little yeah. more difficult. Yes, yes, um, yes. Well, uh, I think we have just time for one last poem. Uh, what do you want to finish with? I'd like to finish with in between. Right. Um, so, uh, in between. I can find it here, is uh, uh, on 58 in the book. And um, there was a a time, I'd say, that uh, I worried that, you know, there was no mystery in the universe. Back when I was in graduate school, some some aspects of graduate school, especially in creative writing, were great. But then I uh, uh, got a PhD and it was all that. French theory, and it, it was uh, a little much. Uh, and I worried there's no mystery. You know, there was only material. There was only matter, only stuff, right? And uh, But as I've grown older and thought about these secrets we've been talking about in the universe, I've come to believe that uh, existence and, and the uh, things are so hidden. The universe is hidden. It's so multiple. It's multifold. It's, and and it, it almost appears like magic, right? This is a poem about how love um, is connected to that that, uh, mystery. It's called In Between. I'd always told myself the late night moonlight glow riding her skin as she slept was a matter of pure matter, simple science, the way the world builds itself. I believed her low blaze to be atomic deceit, particles arranged to dupe me back into an abiding realm where the question is written as a rhetorical answer, a shimmering borealis claiming true north. But then she'd lift from the bottom layer of a dream to pull my face toward her, squinting at some nether version of the fool she knew she'd married for love, and I'd try to sleep. One midnight, the farmhouse we rented dead center of the almond orchard shook in moonless wind as if to dare me into the dark, and it did. I left our bed, stepping soundlessly onto the peeling porch, then upon the patch of night black grass and stood as still as the wind would allow. I could hear in the infinite webs of almond limbs a high voice I knew was no voice, but rather a siren risen from ancient ganglia, the sound of a whistling taunt, a tinnitus betraying my belief in only the tactile. And even if it were nothing more 
than high-pitched worry sending me back to her side all aching night. I held out my hand, tried to gauge the untouchable hovering from her. That is in between. Once again, from the Consecrations, a great, great book of poems, great, great set of poems here you read, Kevin, and a great discussion. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks for being a guest. It's just been a lot of fun. Hey, thanks. I want to also thank Stephen F. Austin University Press and Sarah Henning and Kim Verhines for choosing my book. It was real. It's really been an honor to be with that press and to, to have it come out. Yeah, well, they did a great job and, uh, and sort of did a great book. Thanks so much again, Kevin. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Bye. Bye. Yes, that was Kevin Clark, and uh, once again, his newest book is The Consecrations. Um, you can find it from Stephen F. Austin Press. You can also find Kevin Clark's, um, all of his poetry, kevinclarkpoetry.com, spelled just how you'd think, kevinclarkpoetry.com. Um, so I see Al Ortolani's here. I'm going to go to a quick break and say hi to Al, and then uh, and then we'll open up the open lines a little later. So in a little bit, I will put the link to the uh, Zoom for the open lines. But uh, right now, let's go to Al Ortolani in just a moment. So I'll be right back. And we're back. We have Al Ortolani here, who has a poem coming up on Tuesday for Poets Respond. And of course, Al is, uh, you know, we published one of his chapbooks back in maybe three, four years ago. Um, always a favorite of uh, Rattle. Hey, Al, how you doing? Doing very well. Thank you. Um, so, so this poem that you have, uh, you submitted it last week, um, right at the end, and uh, and we decided to run it this week. It was just, it's a beautiful poem. Do you want to talk a little bit about, and, and, and heartbreaking too? Do you want to talk a little bit about about what inspired the poem? I think, uh, I think what stimulated it was feeling of helplessness uh, as to what we in the United States are supposed to do. The individual person, I mean, not the government about uh, you know the war uh, in uh, the Ukraine uh, it, uh, it it really bothered me and uh, I thought about the peacefulness I feel during the day when I'm out with my dog who is right now my best friend he's he's my buddy uh, he ends up in too many poems enough poems that uh, editors have told me no more dog poems okay and so you know, I, I have to keep him in his place uh, but as a result of that one day I well, if it, I got up in the morning and I heard about the bombing of uh, Zaporizhia, 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 and uh, I was still in bed reading my phone, and so I reached over and I grabbed a copy of William Stafford, who, you know, the great pacifist, and uh, I started reading his poems. And then I went to the computer and uh, just started writing not sure where I was going. And I started with where I was with, you know, the dog and I walking. And I thought, well, where is this going to go? And I, I didn't judge anything as it came out. Uh, I just let the words flow. And then I thought at the end, it, it kind of made sense. I thought, well, maybe it's too sappy, uh, too sentimental, but then I, no, I don't think so. It's just a, an honest feeling. So I, I then polished it up and, uh, you know, took out the excess, the overriding, and sent it to you. Uh, oddly enough, um, either the same morning, yeah, the same as a Saturday, the same morning I opened up the Rattle Poets Respond, and you have five poems by, by uh, Kim 
Stafford. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I yeah. thought that's either going to help my poem. I don't know it. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of funny. So I, you know, we'd accepted those poems. I checked um, to make sure you'd sent it. You'd sent it before we, um, you know, put those poems online. I was wondering if the the Kim Stafford poems inspired this somehow, but um, yeah, it was an interesting coincidence. Well, Kim does inspire me. I, I had the pleasure of talking to him uh, at a Kansas William Stafford get together a few years ago, and he, I don't know, he's he's a fine man and uh, very humble and uh, very easy to talk to. He told me a lot about his dad that uh, I had questions about. So I kind interesting. Of... Yeah. Well, he's going to be the guest at the end of the month too. So we'll get to talk to him yeah. as well on the yeah. show. Um, do you want to go ahead and read this reading William Stafford after the Russian shell, the nuclear reactor at, I'm not even going to try to say the, the, the word. I, well, I had to look it up and then I did the, the pronunciation. They gave me this, this Russian or rather Ukrainian pronunciation that I couldn't handle. So I went to the English pronunciation and it was almost the same, but a little easier. Um, Yeah, I'll read the poem. Reading William Stafford after the Russians shell a nuclear reactor, Zaporizhia, Zaporizhia, I got it. Try again. Reading William Stafford after the Russians shell the nuclear reactor at Zaporizhia. There's a place in the woods where we walk, dog ahead, nosing out voles, the scent of rabbits, whatever has left itself behind from the night. I follow close slower than I once did, but still able with my one good eye to see that the trees are junipers, blueberries lit tomorrow, more vivid than the evergreens fan of needles, the spray of stored sunlight. In the deep branches, an invisible bird breaks into trills, songs to warn others of our passing. We have our moment here today, and tomorrow, well, maybe we are just a trail. What we've left behind from our daylight, boot prints in the mud, paw prints circling back upon themselves, a good nose, an eye on hope, following a trail through the woods without war, without bombs, without fires, which tomorrow's children must fight. Yeah, just a great poem, a great ending, and, and perfect in, in William Stafford's, um, you know, in, in his style. Um, it's great to see a poem, um, you know, going down that route. Thanks so much for sharing that, Alan, being a guest as always. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I will add that I did steal one pat, one line, one partial line from Mr. Stafford, and that was the idea of the stored sunlight. That's when it clicked. Uh-huh. This is where I had to go. So I, I just want the world to know that I am a thief. <laughs> well, aren't we all? Uh, but a beautiful yeah. poem and, and really well received. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Al. Thank you, Tim. Okay, so yeah, that was Al Ordolani with uh, Tuesday's poem, reading William Stafford after the Russians shell the nuclear reactor at Zaporzia. And um, now let's, you know, I think I'm going to read, let's see. So the prompt for this week was to write a poem. Let me see. Um, the prompt for this week was to write a poem about one of the seven wonders of the world. And, um, you know, and there's d- several different seven wonders of the world lists. And here is my poem uh, for the prompt. Then we'll get to the open lines. So this, let's see, there's my, the seven wonders of the world. 
I've never been to any of the seven wonders of the world, not the new or the natural or the ancient. I've never boated to the base of Victoria Falls and been filled with the smoke that thunders, a billion tons of water crashing inside that unquenchable crack in the earth. Never ran my open hand over the sandstone facades of Petra as they vanish grain by grain into history. Never climbed the Great Pyramid of Giza or camped there illegally, my great-grandfather's name carved in the capstone. I have queued on the steps of a minor museum, waiting for the doors to unlock. Our fifty feet felt like the bulls of Pamplona, another place I've never been. And I do remember the Alamo, the parallel parking atop the Hoover Dam. I've wandered up at Mount Rushmore on a cloudy day, finding that last scrap of awe buried deep in my pockets. What I prefer are the seven wonders of marriage. I'll be standing in line for the marvels of your many moods, then we'll lounge in the comfort of a queen-sized bed. The ancient oak out back is dropping its acorns again. Listen as they roll like marbles through the labyrinth of our aluminum gutters. They land on the land under our hammock. The Stellar's J thinks it's a vending machine. So that was my uh, The Seven Wonders of the World poem. Uh, Megan didn't have a poem for this week, so um, so I win the poem, uh, a poem of the week in the household competition. Um, now next up, we're going to go to the open lines, and let me get the link. I'll put the link, as always, in the uh, show notes, or the, in the chat window, I should say. On, on YouTube and Facebook. So if you'd like to join in, only if you would like to, um, you know, share poems. If not, just keep watching on the stream. But um, if you would like to share poems for the open lines, um, here is the link. And I will pin that to the top. Um, so just come on in and share one poem. We're going to have to keep it to one poem today. I have to uh, have to run a little bit early. Uh, we have to go by 11.15 my time, which would be like 2.15 um, your time. Let's see. And uh, open lines. There. So come on in, and we'll share some poems. I'm going to take a quick break, stand up a little bit and stretch, wait for everybody to come in. Then we will share your poems, either about the prompt, about Poets Respond. Um, whatever you would like to share, we will share. Um, so one poem piece on the open lines coming up in just a moment. And we're back. Thanks for patience. I forgot to say, um, also, before you read, email your poem, if you would, to open mic. That's openmic at rattle.com so we can show it on the screen. If you'd rather not show it on the screen, though, and just want to read it, that is fine, too. Now, let's go first. Um, let's go to... Let's go to Bwev, um, Wendell Atherstone. Hey, Bwev, how you doing? Hey, Nice to talk to you. I, I don't know if I got things mixed up, but I thought today's prompt was to do a high brun, high, bu high bun. Um, that, that's going to be for next week, but you can share whatever you'd like. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Boy, that was tough. It was tough. So here's my first attempt ever. Okay. Well, this will be for you. Yeah. So the next week's prompt is going to be to write a high bun. And it's supposed to be uh, uh, um, the season word and the haiku is supposed to be spring. So that's going to be the prompt. Oh, um, so, but you didn't know that part of it. Um, so let's say, uh, so what was your high bun though? What was it about? So it was about what's happening, of course, in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And my haiku within it is about winter because that's when the people are currently fleeing. 
Perfect. Well, let's hear it. Go ahead. My, my husband is entitled Numb. My eyes bleed as I watch the screen. A bomb explodes. Within its vacuum, a family's life implodes. A father kisses his weeping child goodbye, then turns into a soldier's shadow. Food trucks cannot get through, even as hunger hunches nearby. Thousands flee. My sweet hot tea tastes bitter. Frost bitten toes scream, passing conifers snow cloaked while chasing refuge. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. That was numb. And, and a preview of uh, how the hyphen's going to go. So a hyphen is um, you're writing um, sort of notes like journalistically and then capping it off with a haiku. Excellent, excellent use of the form. Thanks for sharing that, Bev. Thank you so much. Okay, let's go to... Um, let's go to um, some new poets. Let's go to um, Raymond Harrison. I'm going to ask Raymond to unmute. Yeah, Okay. Hey, Raymond, how you doing? Very good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I don't have, uh, I didn't email the poem, so I'll, I'll just read it. Yeah, no problem. Go ahead. So what, what is the poem about, though? Tell us, uh, tell us what uh, This was a, a poem I submitted to you this week for the Poets Respond, uh, and it, it has to do with Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's titled, If You Were in Mariupol. How would you feel after they shell your grandmother's ancestral home and you find her clutching her cat, staring breathless into the sky? The soldiers are in her kitchen, eating breakfast at her table. They have taken the turquoise ring you gave her as a birthday gift. You walked those streets just last year, drank coffee inside that cafe with your Ukrainian cousin, who now lies upon its cold floor. The Holocaust Memorial has been hit by artillery. Here, everyone is Jewish, for shells are indiscriminate. A child kneels beside her mother, her tears, her only communion, for she knows nothing of evil and has not yet learned to pray. I am sipping coffee in Maine as light snow drifts from a gray sky. If I were in Mariupol, I would be fighting for my life. Yeah, great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was uh, If You Were in Mariupol. Uh, by Raymond Harrison, and uh, we got it up toward the end from the from the submissions. Thanks for sharing that, Raymond. Thank you. Us. Yeah, let's go to um, let's go to Phil Stern. I'm glad Phil found us on uh, on Zoom. Are you there, Phil? I unmuted. Oh, here it is. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. We can't see you though, but we can hear you. How are you doing? So if you're, uh, there's no need to Uh-oh. be on. We got the yeah. So. Uh, so you can just watch on YouTube. So mute right. the that, mute the YouTube or whatever, Phil. I'm not quite sure I had it. Oh, I see microphone. 
I'm not sure what to do. It's my first time using it. Well, I, I think you're good. I think you're good. So what did you want to share? Okay, I did a prompt poem, mm-hmm. The uh, Seven Wonders of the World. <clears throat> okay, I have okay, it up whenever called, you're ready. Go ahead. Okay, it's called Wondering. Wondering. Were the ancients wrong to choose the lighthouse of Alexandria as one of the seven wonders of the world? rather than the city's great library across the harbor? With furnace burning and a mirror to reflect fire or sun, an unheard of three stories high, only Giza higher, set solidly on an island at the entrance of the bay, helping ships to locate the city, warning of shallows and submerged rocks, an instrument to bring trade from across the known world, a symbol of the power that dominated civilization then. Or a place with meeting rooms and lecture halls where well-paid scholars lived and dined together, where the circumference of the earth was calculated correctly within 250 miles and the head librarian tutored the king's son with unheard of prices offered by royal agents worldwide for acquisitions totaling up to 500,000 scrolls. The great library, built to be the repository of all knowledge, exerting its own kind of power. Those trading ships, for example, that were guided toward the city by the lighthouse were ordered to be searched and any, any scrolls seized and sent to the library to be copied, returning only the copy to the owners, flaunting the power of the Ptolemies. A place containing scrolls, medical and philosophical, Euclid and Democritus, Aristotle and the characters of Theophrastus, translations and commentaries on Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, Sappho and Pindar, and especially on the texts of Homer, that would be passed on to future civilizations. Lighthouse or library, which was more wonderful, which more enduring, the stone or the papyrus? Oh, excellent. That was great, Phil. And I I love the seven wonders of the world, actually. So I'm really excited to hear more poems about it and uh, great descriptions of uh, especially the, the lighthouse at Alexandria. Um, I love that. And I'm so glad that you could uh, you, you could join us on Zoom. I was a little worried because you usually call in that uh, Zoom might be trouble, but it worked great. Oh, good. I'm glad. I can't see myself, but I see you. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's fine. Well, thanks, Phil. Uh, it's great hearing your voice again. Right. Thank you so much, Tim. Okay. Right. Bye. Bye. So that was Phil Stern. Let's go to Caitlin Buxbaum. Hello. Hey, Caitlin. How you doing? Not too bad. I uh, was going to have, I couldn't make it last week and I was going to have you read a poem and then I was like, oh wait, they don't do the Skype thing anymore. They do Zoom. Um, yeah, oh, which I'll by the way, uh-huh. um, the auto response email mm-hmm. um, still says Skype. So oh, I don't know if you it? want to change that. Yeah, I but... should. Yeah. Thanks for the heads up. There's so much to change too. Right. Of course. I, yeah, I just noticed I it get. today. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, Zoom works great. Um, and, and just to remind everybody, I, I should, I should have gone through the whole spiel, but, but if you'd like to share a poem, 
um, leave the live stream you're watching and just come over on Zoom while you share the poem, then go back to the live stream. So, so Phil can go back to just watching it the old way. You can just leave afterward. Everybody else can too. Then you can see the poem as well. Um, the Zoom is just a way to sort of pop in the door, say hello, read a poem, and then you can pop back to where you're watching it before. But make sure that you turn off that, that old stream or at least mute it so then it doesn't play in the background. Um, so anyway, uh, so you wanted to share Once Upon a Time in Babylon. That sounds like a Seven Wonders poem. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, I thought, <clears throat> excuse me, originally, I thought I wanted to um, do one on the Pyramid of Giza because it's the only one that like still exists and it's the longest lasting one. I was like, well, that's got to be fodder for a poem. But I couldn't really find a way in and the other ones were kind of boring to me, honestly. Um <laughs> So I ended up with uh, the gardens and uh, I'm glad I did. It, ter- it took me like an hour and a half to write it. And it's a longer poem than I usually um, write, but I think it turned out all right. Very cool. Let's hear it. Okay. Once upon a time in Babylon. The hanging gardens are the only one of the seven wonders for which the location has not been definitively established. According to Wikipedia. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Genesis 11, 6 and 7. Imagine the grapevines, the bulbous fig, pear, and quince, drooping beside the olives and almonds. What lushness stood to be protected, blind to its own oblivion. Think of the cedar and plum, cypress and rosewood that might have lined the terraces of some great and terrible king, gifts for a wistful woman. And then there was Babel, looming with legacy and inspiring jealousy at the gate of the gods. Say seven winged specters swooped down to destroy ambition, aimed to ravage the gardens along with it. But as the city bled its people, twisted tongues dripping ire, One, then two fairy fiends, softened at the sight of Amatus, or Semiramis, in her queenly grief, stood guard at her head and her heart. Armed with such friends as these, she grounded herself in greenery, death no deterrent to her station. But as words turned to weapons, the heady angel took flight in fear and rejoined its heavenly comrades in the scattering. The queen, in her despair, urged the left to leave, but she was too late. The other angel had made its bed in her bosom. The date palm and the tamarisk and the terebinth disappeared, but the birdkin remained. Wasteland, wasteland, buried their love. Flesh became bone, earthen. One stone unturned. Maybe someone still yearns beneath the river of legend for restoration. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. That was uh, thank you. That was uh, Kaylin Buxbaum, of course, with uh, "Once Upon a Time in Babylon" about the Hanging Gardens, which I love. Great mythologizing of that. Thanks for uh, for writing and sharing it. Yeah, it was fun. Um, I should also say I heard that you were going to be um, featured with the Poetry Society of New Hampshire this week. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's and true. So if people want to get in on that, cool. Unfortunately, I will not be there. I'm really bummed. I'm going to be at a concert, but. Um, I hope it's a good, good conversation. Yeah, I, I should figure out. Do you know how? Where do where would you people go to find that? I don't even know. Well, so we have a website, psnh.org, mm-hmm. 
Um, so that I think there's an events tab. We just got a new website mm -hmm. earlier this year, so um, I'm not sure exactly where it is. Um, but also, if they know Jimmy, of course, yeah. um, send him an email. But yeah, the website psnh.org would be. I think there's um, an event page there and probably a link. Um, and also, the Poets Touchstone is open for submissions. <laughs> just going to throw that in there. Um, and it's not just open to members this time. So oh, very cool. Yeah. So um, yeah. So this is the website, and this is Jimmy Pappas's. Uh, um, he's the what is he the president now or he's the vice president the vice actually. President? Um, but he does all the events and stuff. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And Caitlin's a member. You can go to psnh.org, and then there's a there's a link for poetry events. And it is Tuesday, March 14th from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time is when I'll be on there um, reading poems and things like that. So, uh, yeah, thanks for reminding me. I totally, I should have shared it and I totally forgot. Thanks, Caitlin. <laughs> Tuesday, March 15th. You said 14th. It says 14th on the, on the website. Oh, okay. Well, the 14th right. is tomorrow, so yeah, it's, yeah. Tuesday. <laughs> so it's Tuesday. So it's Tuesday, March for sure. 15th, 2022. Yeah, exactly. Tuesday. Tuesday is all that, that matters. But, yeah, thanks, Caitlin. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay, take care. Mike. Okay, Caitlin Buxbaum. Let's go to uh, Julian Matthews. Hi. Hey, Julian. How you doing? I'm good. Yeah, great to see you. So, uh, what do you have that you would like to share with us? Um, it's just called Seven Wonders. It's a uh, short. Okay, let me pull it up. There it is. Okay, Seven Wonders. Ah, okay. Here we go. Um, let me, let me put it in a word doc really quick. So what time is it there for you right now? Um, it's one forty-six AM. Well, thanks for staying up with us. Okay, here we go. Seven wonders whenever you're ready. Seven wonders. I wonder how his heart grew so cold. I wonder when it wandered to warmer climes. I wonder why it sailed off on a tide of tears. I wonder who next it engulfs and charms. I wonder what intrigue it will fold and unfold. I wonder whether it will ever loosen its hold. I wonder when she will know of the stories untold. Yeah, beautiful short poem. I love that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Julian. Thank you. Okay, now let's go to... Uh, let's go to um, Sutta Puri. Oh, thank you, Tim. Hey, Sutta, how, how are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. I'm good. Um, yeah, and I've uh, this is about the poet's response. Yeah. Yeah. To the, yeah. yeah um, the news of the bombardment of uh, a maternity uh, hospital in Ukraine. Yeah, let me pull this up. Yeah, oops. Um, yeah, that was such a tragic, you know, awful thing to to see. Yes, yes. Actually, it brought back a lot of memories uh, from my childhood. Uh, like I mentioned in the description there, uh, regarding what I had written uh, about my parents who had come, uh, who were displaced because of the partition way back uh, in 1947, partition of India. Mm -hmm. So that was the formation of uh, this uh, country called Pakistan. And they were the original residents of Pakistan and they had to come to Delhi. 
Oh wow. And it, mm-hmm. yeah, throughout my motherhood I like I was born in 60s so like uh, a late child in the family my sister is 20 years older but I kept on hearing stories like my mother would keep on lamenting like she would say that we had to leave our house our belongings everything we came with nothing and we were so well off there and we had to start life all over again like that so we grew up with that every time our life was normal they tried to keep our life as normal as possible but they kept feeling sad about what had happened so i know what happens with refugees and in like if you are displaced from a place so so yeah. this is what brought it around well thanks for so sharing this kind of a... yeah go ahead and read it whenever you're ready i'll, I'll put it up okay okay so <clears throat> the title is and the confusion reigns supreme so what is to be done nothing from nothing came nothing will lead to nothing oh the bliss of blame of raising our voice or oh, the stifling silences the belittling meaningful looks without a word uttered of rebuke or solace oh what is to be done to transcend it all what to do with the noise the noise of it all the sirens and the bombings the unborn fetus return, the unborn fetus turns to look at to look at the one born with unseeing eyes wide shut i was born before time mutters the unborn one my incubator smashed the pipe spewed black smoke oh thank god i didn't face the smoke the unborn fetus speaks silently its lips open to let out a silent scream but it is buried under the debris along with his mother but the news is fake and the confusion reigns supreme it raises its head and is born to flee the country its name is changed and is an and is another nation now the trucks carry all till the railway station already overcrowded with people giving last minute instructions about the things left behind under lock and key safely till it is all over and they would return it's not long before the madness subsides creating a safe corridor for life to ebb out and the confusion reigns supreme i travel by train the strong winds play with my hair and the sun shines through them both in abundant supply as my father holds me tight strapped to his chest on the top of the train he will balance the trunk on his head as he gets down on the railway station of the new nation now our country my mother gives him an angry my mother gives him angry glances the perfect camouflage for the tears she sheds as soon as his back is turned he knows she is not angry with him it is the politicians who sit comfortably in their air conditioned offices holding meeting after meeting counting raised hands pretending to listen to the cries for help of the people buried under the debris especially the unborn fetus that turn to look at the born one amidst the confusion reigning supreme i grow up in the new nation in its 
in its prestigious capital city, which will perpetually ask a question for generations for various reasons, like hiring for a job or matrimony. Where are you originally from? My neighbors in the host city, my neighbors in the host country, the poor people of the city did not have to flee their city to make them poor. They were originally poor, a family of many children with less income. We, the refugees, looked down upon them. As we feel we are the rich from far away and would not have bothered to come to their city if we had a chance, if we had a choice. Their youngest daughter, one of the twins of the brother-sister duo, born at home by the midwife, just as I was born in the government hospital of the new city, which was not bombarded, became the person I played with and who does not play back, but just receives my play ideas with cool disdain as her parents worry. Will the food be sufficient for all? Flows off their minds to their faces down to all the brothers and sisters, reaching the brother-sister twins in full measure like the great Yamuna bouncing off the slopes of the Himalayas, reaching the Gangetic Plains. My playmate from the new nation, now my country, smells of stale chapatis, her long hair matted with mustard oil, extracted from the abundant bright yellow mustard crops, from the fields lining the river Yamuna in the northern plains, parted neatly in the center, braided and folded in a way, that the ribbons fastened at the end looked like two sunflowers shining in the sun on the sides of her head. She wears a dirty yellow scarf to protect her head from the early morning chill. My mother tells me to stay away from her as she has lice in her hair. But I like to exchange my pink floral scarf with her dirty yellow scarf as a sign of friendship. And camera dear, from a rich, poor refugee girl to the originally poor of the host nation, the smell of the stale mustard oil mixed with the smell of her sweat is reassuring, basic and grounded. The odors of a crowded home and dirt liberate me momentarily from the pressure of proving myself to be better than myself. In the new nation, living my mother's belief they were lucky we chose their city as a refuge. Mommy made me notice that their family of nine, seven children and two adults, the originally poor of the host nation, were poorer than us. The refugees from the newly partitioned country, I noticed my playmate talked slowly and evenly, in contrast to my loudly and hurriedly, to make up for the lost time of my parents' exodus from the partitioned land. She walked slowly, firmly, her feet kissing the ground, in contrast to my long strides on the shortcuts from school to reach home faster than her, to make up for the lost time. My mother tells me we are much better off, as we can afford much more. I wish I could sit with the family of nine and share their meal, for which they never invite me as the food is in short supply, and I tread back home with a heavy heart as my mother calls me to eat my dinner. She tells me our food is better 
laden with butter and expensive spices. I like the simple, less spicy food of the originally poor people of the host country. In a few years' time, the names of the original cities would be lost to the new generations who seek help to understand the incessant noise in their heads as the confusion reigns supreme. Suda Puri, Thank thanks you. so much. Yeah, thanks for sharing that poem. Uh, really takes us there and, and lets us feel that experience. Um, so glad you could join us and share it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tim. Okay, now let's go to um, let's go to Nivedita. Um, see what Nivedita's got for us today. Hello. Hey, Nivedita, how you doing? Hey, hey, I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. It's good to see you. So, uh, what would you like to share? Just one poem, because we're kind of squeezing in time. Just the prompt. Um, just the prompt poem. Okay. Um, so, this is a, a "Wonders of the World" poem. Is there anything you want to say about it, or um, do you just want to jump in? Um, so, I was thinking about which wonders I wanted to write about. I chose four, and sort of rather than writing about the wonders as they were, sort of what the wonders would be like what the wonders would think if they were here with us now. Like, would they be happy with us, how we've progressed, or would they not be? Pretty sure the answer is obvious. It's two, but then, so that's basically what it is. I've chosen four of the ancient seven wonders of Mm -hmm. the world, and that's basically what it is. Okay, go ahead. If the wonders existed today, the hanging gardens of Babylon would wilt and droop and literally hang themselves unable to bear the brunt of boorish humanity. The great pyramids are not so great anymore, dwarfed as they are by much taller and more impressive creations that may not probably withstand the test of time. The Temple of Artemis stands derelict and desolate, just the bare stones visible, no marbles anymore, such that Artemis sinks to the earth in shame, unable to witness what humanity has mounted to. The lighthouse at Alexandria tallest and brightest though it may have been, and may still be if it exists today, is not enough to lead humanity out of the darkness it has found itself in. Yeah, great poem. Love that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nivi. Always a pleasure seeing you, and uh, and thanks for staying up late with us. It's it's actually not very late because of your daylight savings change. It's actually an hour earlier for me now. It's only 11.30 p.m., so... Oh, very nice. That's good. Good to hear. Okay, so it'll be good for the summer. Thanks, Nivi. Always good to see you. Thank you, Tim. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thank you. Um, so let's go over to, um, let's go to, um, I believe let's go to Australia with Andrew Tredinick. Hey, Andrew, are you there? Hi. Hi, Tim. Yeah, thanks so much for joining again. So what do you have to share with us? Um, I've got... Uh... I, I got the, it's a version of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I did a, a little bit of Wikipedia-ing uh, uh-huh. and discovered that um, some researchers have worked out, they reckon, that uh, the hanging the actual Hanging Gardens of Babylon uh, are likely to have been the gardens of King Sennacherib of Assyria, uh, Nineveh, uh, because they've got actual evidence for the oh, stuff really? there, but of oh, course it's it's yeah. it's recent scholarship, mm-hmm. and it's um, Dr. Stephanie Daly. I'll just read the little footnote I put at the bottom. Dr. Stephanie Daly, historian of ancient Assyria at the University of Oxford, demonstrates convincingly through her translations of cuneiform records from antiquity 
site visits to present-day Iraq and the interpretations of satellite photography by others that the real hanging gardens of Babylon were actually the palace gardens of King Sennacherib of Assyria at Nineveh, near present-day Mosul. Wow, I had no idea. That's fascinating. <laughs> so that was just me, wiki Google, you know, and I found a YouTube interview and yeah, it was it was interesting. Anyway, but it's it's still they admit it's speculative, but it's they've done the research. So I'll read the I'll read the poem. Um, hanging out in Assyrian gardens by the rivers of Nineveh, we delight. And from King Sennacherib himself, a marvel for all peoples, a wonder of the world, said King Sennacherib of Assyria, explaining his palace gardens. You can see King Sennacherib's canal from space, built to bring water 60 miles from the mountains in the north to Nineveh. We now think that his gardens were mistakenly attributed to Nebuchadnezzar II in Babylon, who lived 100 years later and 250 miles to the south, likely from a few cut-and-paste errors back in the day. So the hanging gardens hung their fruit trees in Nineveh, right next to Mosul, not Babylon, nearer Baghdad. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, king of the world, diverting rivers with the help of the gods and all the wisdom of his engineers. The canal 20 metres deep, 80 metres wide, and its whole length dropping one metre to keep flow, even over aqueducts where the canal crossed rivers. Miracles of Assyrian technology with Archimedes screws 400 years, late, 400 years before Archimedes had invented them to bring 300,000 litres of this water every day up to the high gardens of the palace. Paradise in the desert, gardens of delight overlooking the city, taming the wilderness, a marvel for all peoples, a wonder of the world. Yeah, that is fascinating and, and definitely amazing what, <laughs> what, what, what would have gone into that. I think that isn't the Syrian Empire was the, um, uh, the longest in the, war, in the history of the world, right? Wasn't it like 2,000 years or something like that? Yeah, and 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 they they invaded. I was kind of fascinated too. You, you might have seen the the rivers of Babylon, the rivers of Nineveh, sort of the biblical reference because the Assyrians, you know, I think were an expansive kind of regime and um, uh, it occupied Israel at one stage, and mm -hmm. you know, as did Babylon. And so I'm kind of fascinated by the the ancient transformation of the desert idea and. And the fact that they'd worked out this garden, yeah. the size of this canal, and the, the amount of water that that was ended up in the, like it, it's kind of yeah, yeah. fascinating it, it's ancient technology. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Take thanks care. for having us. Yeah, my pleasure. Mm. Okay, let's go. We've got to try to move quickly. Let's go to Peter or Potter King Badger O'Donohue. Hi, Tim. Hey, Potter. How you doing? I'm good. Uh, thanks, everyone, and thanks, Kevin. Uh, that it's, it's all been uh, amazing. Um, I'll crack on because I know you're busy. Um, my poem is um, uh, The Seven Wonders. I managed to actually do the prompt. The Seven Wonders. I wonder about the wonder of them as I wonder about my own locale and try to imagine the hanging gardens of Babylon among the Japanese knotweed on Beach Road. And thanks to Google, I realized those gravitational displays are not wondrous enough at all. There is the Great Wall of China, 
we have a proposed wall along the Avoca River, a flood barrier extraordinaire. I'd never heard of the Chichen Itza. Wow, but our Kentucky Fried Chicken closed down. Machu Picchu sounds like a Pokemon card. And oh, we only have a ruin of a farm on the slopes of Croken. Itself not quite a mountain, but a mighty effort. Christ the Redeemer, Rio de Janeiro. Only Christ the Cur with his paedophile priests in our existence. Petra, the Red Rose City. We would need rose-tinted glasses to see its like here. The Taj Mahal, wondrous in its beauty, an ivory-white mausoleum on the banks of the River Yuma in the sunlit city of Agra. We have the Earl of Wicklow's neglected pyramid on the grey drizzled banks of the M50. Rome has the Colosseum. We have Pierce Park, our Gaelic grounds, a dead, dead crow caught in the high nets, a warning to all. Yeah, Thanks well, that ending, surprising turn. Thanks, Potter. Great, great seeing you and, and happy to have that poem. Thank you. Can I just say one more thing? Yeah, sure. That um, this week of all weeks, we realize, as W.H. Auden said, poetry changes nothing. But also within that poem, he did say, in the nightmare of the dark, all the dogs of Europe bark and the living nations wait, each sequestered in its hate. And the final stanza, in the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise. And I think that's what popes have to do. We're not, we're not going to change anything, but if a poem can make you feel better by writing it or help someone else who reads it, that's all we can do. Thanks a million. Yeah, really well said. Thanks for sharing that and for, for joining us today. Okay. Yeah, that was a great quote to hear the rest of that. We're definitely not going to get to everybody. I'm really sorry for uh, for not being able to get to everybody this week. Let's go uh let's go to um let's go to uh Dick Westheimer. Hey Tim. Hey Dick, how you doing? Good. I'll uh I'll do my part to get as many people on as possible. I'll read my poem The Half-Life of Portraits of War which was a poet respond, poet's respond. It's the shortest one I have this week. Okay. And, and just say what it's about, though. I mean... Um... Yeah, uh, real quickly, there was a photograph on the front page of the New York Times of the family that was uh, escaping um, uh, or you know, seeking refuge from their city uh, and were hit by a mortar, mm-hmm. like, intentionally. Yeah. Uh, the, the escape and the... This I saw an interview with the poet, and I kicked the cat, as it will say in this poem. Yeah. Okay, because it was just like you know that moment of realization and seeing the emotion on her eye and her face as she, as she talked about her experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely understand. Yeah, so the half life of portraits of war, and uh, this is a quote from her interview, Lindsay Adario, the New York Times photojournalist. We survived and we were able to bear witness to what happened, to see that family, the mother and her two children lying there on the ground, lifeless with their little suitcases is the most heartbreaking thing I've seen. And really the suitcase is what got me, I will say. The witness displayed her portrait of woe. 
I bit my lip, my face wrenched tight, my rage unmasked, I kicked the cat. The cat, a victim of war, does not know about the towhead child in the pink puffy coat, about her big brother in blue, his little backpack askew. The cat cowers as I walk by, but soon he forgets and nuzzles his blunt nose on my leg. How soon will I forget the towhead child, her bloodied mother, her brother and friend, her roller suitcase, the dead? The witness will not forget. The soldier who tried to protect will not forget. The shooter will not forget. Only the cat and Putin and I will forget. Yeah, excellent. Great poem again. Thanks for sharing that, Dick. Yeah, thanks, Kim. Yeah. Okay, well, I have time for one more. Um, sorry that we can't have everybody. Let's go to um, um, uh, Audrey. Right. Hi, How are you doing? Hi. Hi, Tim. Hi, everybody. Another great afternoon. Um, so I think I am the free verse poet turned rogue because <laughs> everything for the last three months has come out in form. So I wrote a Chichen Itza Tanka. Ah, interesting. The ring, the ring is for bonus points. Mayan tour guide says... 10-pound rubber ball games bring trophies, life or death. Killed for the win, not the loss. Victory frozen in stone. Oh, that was excellent. Good, Tanka. Thanks for sharing that. I was there, and I was shocked to find out you were killed for winning. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like The honor (laughs) of being killed. (laughs) No, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, I'll pass. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. Well, that was so quick. We have time for someone else. Let's go to Mike Bales. I see him here. Um, hello. Uh, good day. Yeah, I'm going to have to study in the long form a little bit. Uh, so uh, what, we have, talk, yeah, what do you Dosen? have for us? We have that Dosen poem form we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I try to make the lines a little different. I wrote three. This might be the best. Is this still you, my The English? interpretation's up to you. I email it to you. Still my angels? Like a couple hours. Is it still my angels? Yeah, still my angels. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, Whatever it means. Still my angels. My hidden birds quieted snow like tears drift, seeding hidden grounds, a refraining of nothing for now, dying to itself, solitude of dreams, shadows of early light, and implication a beginning from its end, haunted stars dance to rumbles of distant wars. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. I appreciate getting squeezing one last poem in. Thanks for being well, here. I'm glad, always glad to be on. Uh, I'll have to study your, your star person uh, more, get more into the long form or be more aware of it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, thanks. Good. Well, good to see you. Thanks. Okay. So we're going to have to, uh, uh, stop that there. Sorry for everybody who we couldn't get to, um, but that is going to be the show for today. Really, really quickly, let me show you my uh, Saiku. And this this article is from Science Daily. It's um, uh, from Tel Aviv University, actually. And the article here oops, is... Um, 
Uh, collectors in the prehistoric world recycled old stone tools to preserve the memory of their ancestors. And this is a study that showed that way back, you know, 500,000 years ago, um, hominids were collecting relics and keeping them. Um, they, they claim uh, in, this, in this paper, they think that they were keeping them in a kind of um, a sense of connection to the past, which I think is a, is a bit of a leap, in my opinion. But... Um, uh, but but they have these stone, you know, the, the hand axe that we use for so long. There's the patina on there can show that there were like two phases of these hand axes. And so they would be used, um, you know, for a while and then discarded. And then thousands of years later, picked up again and, and reshaped, but just the, uh, the, the sharpened edge part. And um, showing that humans were reusing tools of their ancestors 500,000 years ago is pretty, pretty interesting. And uh, so the haiku really quickly was this. And this is a true story. The only thing I have for my dad are his bowling shoes. So here's my quick psyche. Um Let's see. Okay. Tradition, still breaking in dad's old bowling shoes. Tradition, still breaking in dad's old bowling shoes. That is my psyche for this week. And that is the show for this week. Um, the prompt for the next week is going to be, we already mentioned it, it is to write a hyben. And the haiku season is spring. So it's very simple. The haibun, again, is a you write in a, um, a journalistic kind of prose entry, and then you write a, a haiku to kind of cap it off and undercut it and take it in a surprising direction, let's say. And that is going to be the uh, prompt for next week. And next week's guest is going to be Susan Vespoli. Um, Susan Vespoli has a new book, Blame It on the Serpent, um, about her son's struggle with addiction. And dealing with that as a parent, and, and it, the the opioid crisis is such a huge problem in uh, in the country now and all over the world now um, because of fentanyl, and so so Susan Bespoli's book is a really powerful look at, at going through that experience. So we'll be talking to her. Um, blame it on the serpent. That's Rattlecast number one thirty six, Sunday, March twentieth, the regular time, noon Eastern, nine a.m. Pacific. Uh, Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.